0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Docs Running Podcast. I'm Nathan, your host. I'm here with Dr. David Salas and Dr. Matt Klein. There's the three of us here at the Roundtable. Today's episode number 113 and we're going to be talking about something that we've actually gotten a lot of questions about over the last six months. It's a specific condition that uh, comes and impacts runners very often. And so we're going to try to do a deep dive on this topic and we're really excited to do other topics like this one. But before we do that, please don't skip forward for this part of the podcast. We're going to be talking about our DR giving for this month. And I got to choose this month and I am picking the, the organization, the humble hustle. Um, and one of the things that they do is called the humble hikes program. And the humble hikes program provides the chance to expand youth's horizons and experience the world around them in a positive and healthy way. Humble hikes aims to expose, to expose black youth to the outdoors. They provide education in environmental sciences, environmental activism, advocacy and available, resources uh, in their community. So they empower youth by providing more representation of minorities in the outdoors. And this was actually an organization that I was exposed to through someone who's in uh, the EDD uh, ED program, the educational doctor program that I'm a part of, which is educational sustainability. And so uh, they sent this to me as a possible organization that we could work with and partner with this this month. And we're excited to do that. So if you want to learn more about what they're up to, you can go to www.thehumblehustle.org. And then there's a tab if you want to learn specifically about the Humble Hikes Programming, you can click on that link, but check out what they're up to. And we're excited to be working with them this month. So, like I said, episode number 113, we're going to be talking about a specific condition, and that's going to be the topic of, I'm putting in air quotes, shin splints. Uh, But before we jump into that topic, we do want to do our subjective, and we're hoping that this can help spur on some conversations that you all want us to have. And so the subjective this week is, what running-related injury are you most interested in learning more about? Uh, And then we are going to hopefully be able to provide more resources and create this podcast in a way that integrate some of those into it. So what running related injury are you most interested in learning more about? That's our subject for the week. But here is the topic. Let's dive right in. So I'm going to pose this question to David, just kind of big picture. When you hear the term shin splints, what do you think about what comes into your head?
1: Yeah, I'd have to say the first thing that comes into my brain is shin pain. So literally blanket statement, the shin hurts whether it's on the inside, on the outside, on the front, on the back, shin hurts.
0: It means something. <laughs> totally. I, th- I think that's one of the most confusing things because people like, be like, I ha- they'll tell me as a PT, like, oh, I have shin splints. Um, and I ask them how they found that out, and usually they looked it up online or something, and then you'd get told you have shin splints, and it says to rest in ice and then kind of move on. And it's, it's really confusing because – What you just said, David, is exactly the reality where you ask people, oh, where does it hurt? When does it hurt? How does it hurt? And it's different for all of these people because the mechanism is different. So even in the research, like when you're looking up research on – I'm going to just keep using the term, quote-unquote, shin splints till later. Um, The researchers can't even agree on a term. So some of them use shin soreness, some use tibial stress syndrome, some say medial tibial syndrome, some say medial tibial stress syndrome. That last one, medial tibial stress syndrome, is kind of the one that I've been most accustomed to, Um, but and we can dig into why later. But there's so many different names because how you actually – figure out what is causing this and what's the etiology of this. That's actually not totally agreed upon. So there's tons of of different types of of pain that come in the shin, just like you said, DJ, and it and it gets a little bit convoluted and hopefully our conversation will illuminate some of the things that we can start to latch onto. While also big picture recognizing that Googling what do I do for my shin splints will not be a helpful Google search. It just won't. Um, So Matt tell can you tell us a little bit more about the anatomy um, of the shin, and we can use that as a platform to talk about what is causing pain in the shin and what are some potential causes?
2: Yeah. so just so the listeners know I die a little bit every time inside when somebody says shin splints because there's so much stuff anatomically that's going, I'm just kidding. But there's so shin many splits. things uh, so many splits. things happening anatomically in this area, which is why, the term shin splints really doesn't do justice to the number of things that this could be. It's like when somebody comes in with low back pain. As somebody who works in a spine center, it's like, okay, there's a lot of structures in there. We're going to have to – you know, that's part of our job though is to be a little bit – is to figure out explicitly what structure. And so again, I think Nathan hit it on the head where it's like our job is to figure out specifically which one of these things. But for the listeners and the viewers – the shin area actually isn't one bone. There are two bones in this area. So the, and I know this thing is missing a top half, but for the listeners, I'm holding half the, up the bottom half of top a foot. Top two thirds. There's the large top two thirds. <laughs> the The tibia is the large bone on the medial side or inner side. The fibula is the, depending on who you ask, the non-weight bearing bone on the outside. Both of them have a lot of stuff going on between. There's the calf muscles on the back side. Uh, that includes the g- two heads of the gastroc. That includes the soleus in the back. You've got stuff on the inner side, whether it's the um, – why am I having a brain fart? The posterior tibialis. You've got some of your deep toe muscles in there on the back and the front. So the flexors of the toes, the big ones, sit on the back of those with the interosseous membrane in the mem- in the middle, which is this thing that connects the tibia and the fibula. On the outer side, you've got all your fibular muscles, so the is longus, tertius, and brevis on the outside. On the front, you've got your anterior tibialis, which is the opposite of the posterior tib. You've got your toe extensors. There's all, And that doesn't even include are the arteries, veins, and nerves traveling throughout those areas. So there's there's a lot of stuff in that area and just the same – there's a lot of things that can cause symptoms in that area and there's things up higher that can actually refer symptoms down into that area. It's not even related.
0: Yeah, there's, there's so there's many a lot. things going on. There's a lot going on anatomy-wise and one other piece too is when you think about those bones themselves – bone isn't just bone bone structure when you start to look at it anatomically has different layers to it um dj do you want to talk about that at all in terms of kind of layers of bone kind of on a global scale i mean
1: i think the biggest thing when we're talking about bone tissue in general um layers non-layers whatever um is that it's a living tissue and i think a lot of people forget that and it's easy to forget and i don't blame them a lot of people think of the skeleton Mm -hmm. and it's this rigid structure that just holds you up But there's a lot of vascularity, a lot of things going on with bone. And it's constantly shaving away bone, and it's constantly Mm regrowing new bone, just like you would anywhere else in the body with any other cells. Osteoclasts, osteoblasts, anything with osteo, we're referring to skeletal bone there. Um, So I think the biggest takeaway, regardless of whatever layer we're talking, if it's, you know, marrow or the periosteum or anything like that – is that it's a living tissue. It still needs to recover. And in order to build more, it still needs to have an adaptive load in order to create more as well. It's just like any other tissue in the
0: body. Yeah, that's huge. And you, you mentioned a couple things there and one of them is periosteum and periosteum. And then the inner layer is the actual bone itself, but you can kind of, this is maybe a bad analogy, maybe a good analogy, but it's kind of like a, a uh, an orange where the orange has a peel. And then the inside is the the edible part of the orange itself. And so, you know, the periosteum, it would be in theory, like the peel, but it's not the actual orange that we eat itself, but it's a, it's a big part in the function of, of the bone. Um, so I think when, when we, when we talk about medial tibial stress syndrome, Uh, and as defined as that, and we're going to talk about other differential diagnoses later, that's actually when the, that part of the bone, that periosteum is the thing that is impacted and that there's inflammation and irritation to that part. Typically that's going to happen. Um, in this, there's kind of like a five centimeter window on the distal third of the tibia. So actually like where, where Matt, has had his model held up. It's actually in that zone kind of in the kind of towards the bottom part of that and a little bit up a little bit further. That's the area where that people are going to have that. And a lot of times it's on the inside when you're dealing with true uh, medial tibial stress syndrome. And when we talk about bone now, Matt, let's, let's talk a little bit about what does bone do well with and what does bone not do well with in terms of stress and strain? What kind of things is it good at handling and what kind of things is it weaker against?
2: Yeah, so you may you might actually be the better expert on this stuff. But so some of the things that I can touch on in terms of tissue healing is that bone, in terms of the, the loads, running actually is really great for bones. We know weight-bearing exercise is actually phenomenal. It's really important. As somebody who's a geriatric specialist, is something really important to get older individuals to realize, hey, this osteoporosis or bone weakening that you're experiencing or bone thinning, you have to do weight-bearing exercise. So bone responds really well to load, right? Usually a little bit more axial-type load tends to be a little bit better, i.e. coming straight down and up, Um it, but it's also really important that you recognize that the tissue tends to take a little bit longer to heal than, say, a muscle or other structures. So it responds very well to load. It just needs a little bit more time to deal with that stuff. And Nathan, I'd love for you to add on to that because you've had some personal experiences with this.
0: Unfortunately, yeah. yes. <laughs> not not so much. I did have one uh, one tibial stress syndrome bout that really took me – took me a while to recover from, but this year has been the year of stress fractures in my feet, which has been less fun, Uh, which is a little bit different than this. But I think when you think about bone, you just said, that bone is basically really well with compression, yeah. um, that when the bone is compressed, it responds well to that. It needs time to respond, but it's that's what it's designed to do is to deal with compression, whereas it's not so good in situations where there's torsion um, twisting to the bone or tension to the bone. So if it's bent uh, in one way or another and there's tension on the outside, kind of like if you were to bend a stick Uh, And the top part of the stick is where there's a lot of tension. Bones do not do well in those situations. And so that's where some of the causes of medial tibial stress syndrome can come into play and make a little bit more sense. So um Again, we're, when we talk about MTSS, medial tibial stress syndrome, we're really talking about the periosteum being irritated. In the studies, when they've done these to look at what's actually happening at the level of the bone here, they're seeing that the periosteum has inflammation. So that area of the bone has inflammation. And then the bone structures underneath it is actually thinner. So there's less, or thinner is the wrong word, but less density. And the reason that it has less density is likely because of what David talked about, where there is always constant activity going on within bones. So there's always different cells that are breaking down bone and other cells that are building it up. And if there's a mismatch between the tension that's because tension or, um, or torsion on a bone is going to increase high levels of activity of the cells that decrease or that break down the bone. And if that is too high where you can't counter that with the, the other cells that build it back up, that's where you start to have decreased density And then at the same time, they're finding with these people that they're having the inflammation of the periosteum.
1: Yeah. And kind of to go back on the analogy, well, it's not an analogy. It's a fact. It's it's living tissue. So just like any kind of muscle tendon, when something's getting overloaded and it's getting chronically overloaded, things start to fray. They start to fall apart a little bit. That osteoclastic activity of it breaking down on the inside, it's overweighing the recovery side of things. So just like anything else, you got to make sure you have good sleep, you're eating well, take care of the little things and the recovery and things speed up exponentially. It's insane. So just a little tidbit there.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think, um, just keep in mind too, we're talking about the periosteum right now, but there, these things can kind of overlap with each other. So there can be involvement of the bony cortex. That's where stress reactions and stress fractures come in when the actual bones involved. Or it can have to do with the tendons that attach to these areas, which are providing tension to the bone. So that's the tendinopathies. Um, Or there can even be something called exertional compartment syndrome. Um, And we'll talk about that one a little later. But these are all completely different conditions. And the way you treat these things can be different. So the point kind of early on here is this is that shin splints is not a helpful term because treatment needs to be informed by the structure involved in this case as well as taking into account all of the other factors of our experience of pain obviously that makes a big difference but shin splints isn't helpful because the the anatomical cause in in this case can really make a difference of how you proceed with treatment um, and i think Another example would be like if someone has a stuffy nose, it could be because you just have a viral infection and you need to wait and there's not much you can do, or it can be due to a bacterial infection in which an antibiotic would actually help. So the cause of the symptom, even if the symptom feels the same, um, the cause of it can lead to a different treatment path. So in the same way, again, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing with, uh, with shin splints or medial tibial stress syndrome is we just throw around this term shin splints, and then people try to figure out what to do online. And unfortunately it just becomes really messy because there isn't a good consensus because there's so many different causes as has been shown by what the anatomy is that's going on in that area. There's just a lot happening. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how these structures and how the periosteum gets irritated. And I'll just cover a couple big things and then we'll go into diagnosis. So we mentioned that bones are not very good with tension and not very good from bending. So tension is what happens um, when the muscles that are attached to the periosteum are continually pulling on that area of the bone and of the periosteum. So they did cadaveric studies where they would pull on things like the tibialis posterior, or they would pull on the flexor digitorum longus and all these muscles that are attaching that Matt had just talked about a little bit about anatomy, and they showed increased uh, forces that are going through the periosteum of the bone in those areas. And so they in the area that people report pain for medial tibial stress syndrome. So if you're having overuse of those muscles and you're not allowing enough recovery for the bone in those areas, that's where you're going to start to develop some of that inflammation, irritation, and also the decreased density of the bone underneath that area where you're getting all of that tension. The second force that bones don't do well with is bending forces. And these come from more biomechanical abnormalities. And so if you have somebody where you're so I, I, we we should say this. There's so much to say about this stuff, but but our bones are shaped usually, especially the, let's talk about the tibia. I guess you have these wider areas on the top. It gets really narrow in the middle, and then it widens out at the bottom. That middle part is the called the diaphysis, and that's there's a there's the area that medial tibial stress syndrome typically attacks is the most narrow part of the diaphysis. So if you're running in a way that is putting more tension on the outside or the inside of that bone. Sometimes that can be due to a lot of hip adduction that's putting the foot across, crossover gait. There's a couple other things. Um, That amount of tension that would become repetitive with running, that can be one of those things that leads to too much tension, too much breakdown and irritation of that periosteum. So let's, let's go into a little bit more of the clinical diagnostic side. And Matt, we'll kind of kick this off with you. What kind of things uh can we can we think about when it comes to diagnosing this and what's our differential diagnosis for a couple different things that could be causing pain in this area
2: so a very thorough subjective is one of the first things to start going hey kind of what's going on so without that you're flying a little bit blind i mean yes you can you might be able to get about palpation but knowing The history of what's led to this is one of the most important things. Um, Sometimes even – so with people coming in with fractures and stress fractures, those don't show up for a little bit sometimes. So that's why, again, a history can be most helpful. So going, hey, did you just start running? Was there any sudden changes? Were there big jumps in mileage? That can be really important because that can give us a little emphasis into is this bones? is Could this be a little bit more bone stress related? Could this be a little bit a little bit more muscular related? But there's also some additional symptoms that can occur like kind of like that deeper – when you ask a patient, does it feel like it's superficial or deep? A lot of times some of the more bone related or deeper stuff will be – that didn't come out right. Some of the, the more bone related <laughs> stuff will be typically a little bit deeper in there, kind of feel like this gnawing kind of thing that's there all the time or – when the early stages, it won't be there all the time, but it can definitely last a little bit after a run. When it's really nasty, it'll just be all the time, whether you're putting weight on it or not. The muscular stuff tends to be follow another pattern where, yeah, if you're working it, it'll get pissed off. And then as soon as you stop, typically it'll let go unless you've really irritated it. And there's just patterns that present step to in that. Let me start that again. There's patterns of pain and symptoms that match different tissues, right? How long it sticks around for, how long it takes to warm up into it. Does it go away after you start running? Does it get worse after you start running? All of those things are patterns that can help us diagnose and give an idea of where to look. And after that, it becomes, can we reproduce these symptoms with muscle testing? Can we reproduce it with, you know, the tuning fork test, which that's a whole other conversation about accuracy and stuff like that. But The tuning fork test is taking a tuning fork at a specific frequency and putting it on the bone. And when you vibrate a bone where there's tissue uh, damage or like a fracture, it tends to not feel very good. If that reproduces the patient's symptoms, then it's like, oh, that may not be a good thing. I always freak out, by the way, if I suspect somebody has that. It's like, oh, please don't be it. Please don't be it. And then you put it on. (laughs) See what happens. But. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, things should respond to specific tests or exercises. Muscles should respond should be irritated by muscle testing. Tendons should be irritated by either palpation or again load and things like that. Uh bones should be it can reproduce it with either the tuning fork test or specific loading and impact things that you can do. So the hop test is a really great way to test that. Or I'm sorry, it's the pogo test. Who came up with that? I forget who that was. I don't um, know. Uh I Mr. need to go. No, I need to give credit Who's for this Pogo too. I cannot from, remember. Uh, Somebody in the comments. Academy, that's who it was. No, that's that's not it. Um nerve also is something very important, so nerve tension is something you can look at there, but I'll stop there because I
1: think I'm rambling.
0: That's great. DJ, do you have anything to add about kind of differential diagnosis and some clinical testing?
1: No, I think Matt hit it pretty well. I think it's just about prioritizing, taking a look at everything, break it up into the compartments. No pun intended. We're going to be talking about that soon, probably. But, um, what, what's going on, right? Like what, what is hurting? What is aggravating you? When does it hurt? Is it worse in the morning? Is it worse at night? Does it progress throughout the day? Is it with activity? Is it all the time? Is it only when you're weight bearing, you know, things like that, just getting the little details and then fine tuning things, tuning for that's, we're, we're crushing it today. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> Matt's got his hand up. Yes, the, Matthew.
2: I would I would be remiss, especially for the residents and fellows that I work with, to not say, hey, like how the patient presents in terms of where their pain is, in terms is it vague, is it more specific, can help you give an idea of is this coming from a local source or is it something higher up that you might need to check, like the spine, which occasionally does refer stuff into this area.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. The, I think, I think a couple other things as you've looked at, as you look at consensus papers and kind of meta analysis and systematic reviews are when they ask, how do we diagnose this? Um, first, diagnosis is hard, which is why there's so much, there, there's a lot of breadth of names for this stuff. But they also, I, I think, a question that people ask me a lot in the clinic is, do I need to get x rays? Do I need to get, what, what do I need to do in terms of imaging? And right now to help diagnose medial tibial stress syndrome, uh, the, the diagnostic utility of an MRI even or a CT scan um, and definitely an x-ray is just not very good. It doesn't give you a lot of information. Part of it is because the sensitivity of those tests for the type of irritation that's happening at the bone, they just can't pick it up. So it's going to be more of a clinical diagnosis, which means that the person that you work with to help figure out what's causing the symptoms, they're going to be your greatest resource as well as your ability to track what's going on. And so I'm going to kind of highlight that with one example of a differential. So I mentioned earlier um, exertional compartment syndrome. And then we're, we've been talking about medial tibial stress syndrome, which more has to do with the periosteum exertional compartment syndrome is very different. So without going too deep within our, within our calf, there are different compartments, meaning there's different groups of muscles that are kind of put into these little bags that are these fascial kind of bags. They just hold these muscles together, hold these nerves together and these arteries, all in little compartments. And what happens to some people is over time, the pressure inside of those compartments continues to rise as that, as that pressure rises, that compresses on things like the nerves and the arteries. And you start to get a pain that actually feels very similar to medial tibial stress syndrome. But there are some nice differences that you can do in terms of diagnostics. Um, the first is that compartment syndrome is more of a cramping pain, more of a burning pain because it can impact those nerves, aching and tightness that workens with worsens with exercise. So, the similarity is that they both get worse with exercise, but the big difference with compartment syndrome is that it's very predictable in terms of how long it takes for it to come on. So for someone, it might be three minutes, and then that pain is gonna be present every single time. Whereas somebody who's having periosteal irritation, if they've taken a couple of days off, They might not have pain for the first two miles, and then the next day, then they have pain after the first two minutes, and it kind of varies like that, whereas this compartment syndrome is a lot more predictable in terms of it takes this long X number of time for it to come on at a certain intensity of exercise, and then usually it goes away afterwards, whereas sometimes, meaning once you calm down, then the pressure within that compartment will go down and the the pain will go away. Whereas for something with, if you're having periosteal irritation or bony irritation, it might stick around a bit longer and it might be present with impact activities that don't increase the amount of demand on your cardiovascular system so there's ways to differentiate these things and that's hopefully where your ability to bring what the pattern of symptoms are compared with who's your clinicians uh, and who's your clinician what kind of things are they bringing to their table in terms of understanding the pattern of symptoms that's where that's where you're going to be able to figure out what is going on the most. The the last the last things I'll, I'll point out when it comes to palpation testing. So when we sell palpation, we mean pushing on different structures to see if they elicit pain or some kind of symptom. Um, usually palpation for tibial stress syndrome is a little bit more diffuse. Uh, where And compartment syndrome, you might not get pain with palpation testing because there isn't actually a structure that's irritated. It all has to do with pressure and compression. So that's another really nice differentiator. If you you do suspect exertional compartment syndrome and something that's been sticking around for a while, there are tests that can be done by physicians to do pressure testing using some special equipment to figure out what is the actual pressure inside of those compartments at rest. And then when you exercise, so they elicit the symptoms and see if the pressure changes. And that can be a pretty great diagnostic. I think the other differential that we want to talk about is the difference between a stress fracture um, and medial tibial stress syndrome so when you guys think about that clinically how do you go about teasing that out i think it's a little bit harder but what what do y'all think about
1: i mean one of the go-to's for me would probably be a tuning fork create some vibration on that bone i mean yes like the periosteum could still create some pain but usually if it's a genuine stress fracture in a region it'll light right up um usually hurts all the time you wait there on it and even at night you're just laying there and it just it's kind of throbbing at you and just doesn't feel good i've had two of them so um, yeah they just
0: yeah that's the bi- n- night pain's the big one i think yeah. Where like uh, medial tibial stress syndrome won't bother you at night but those those darn stress yeah fractures, they're not fun yeah
1: knock on wood Bone it's been fun. a while when bone, I mean, there's
2: a lot of tissues that when they're super inflammatory can really ache all the time. But bones are one of those structures that when they're when they get irritated, that can especially at night. Um, I forget there's a clinical reason why that there also tends to get a little bit worse at night. I can't remember the
1: reason
0: because it doesn't want you to sleep.
1: Just saying, forget I was you. Trying to think of a really bad, yeah. you know, anatomical pun. That's, and my
0: but stress. I mean, was, like there's there's a lot of. That was tissue. my attempt at a bad joke.
2: There's a lot of tissues that will get inflamed enough that can be troublesome at night. But bone just tends to be one of those. It just hurts all the time. And even when you're – maybe it's because you focus on it more. But I think my my thing is very similar to David where I'm more likely from my clinical experience to elicit a stress fracture symptoms with the tuning fork or um, the other thing is listening and going if it starts – if it takes a little bit. As they're running or weight bearing to start for the symptoms to come on, then I'm starting to think a little bit more bone related. But then if it's like almost immediately because those muscles starting to fire, fire and pull on that periosteum, then I'm going, I'm wondering a little bit. And especially if I can't reproduce it, and I'm getting and I'm getting that kind of symptoms like I can't reproduce it with muscle testing or I can't reproduce it with basic palpation, then I, those some of those red flags are coming about. Although to be fair, both those things, I mean. I guess there are there are different treatments, but I'm still kind of worried about both tissues, even if if one's irritated or the other just based on their proximity.
0: Yeah. And can I just ask you to clarify one thing you had said? If the symptoms start right away, then I'm worried about this. And if it takes a while to come on, then it worries about this. Can you fill in those two blanks again?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that actually depends. So my my clinical experience when we've actually been able to diagnose periosteum and you can get a little bit with confirming with ultrasound and then and then comparing <laughs> diagnostic ultrasound i'm sorry uh, gotcha. the, the periosteum and you might tell me if you had a different experience but periosteum kind of tends to get irritated pretty quick whereas oftentimes with more bone stress stuff it'll be quiet at first but then as the load accumulates it'll just it's more likely to get take a second for it to get irritated have you had a different clinical experience
0: no, I just I just wanted to clarify those points just to Got make it. sure that they they were they were made sense and there that's great. Am I mumbling um, again? I, I, no, <laughs> okay, not good. at all. Just <laughs> we'll common, tell you. common complaint we'll sure from Regina. As as he starts to pass out, his yeah. speech becomes less clear. Um, no, I th- I think another thing to point out here is is another thing relating to imaging. So. If you're concerned about stress fracture, again, the utility of an x-ray is not very helpful because x-rays, unless you have it, if your stress fracture is so severe that it's, you have a displaced fracture because of the stress fracture, then you're going to catch it on x-rays. But you will not catch them on x-rays if it's just a stress fracture that's not a non-displaced fracture. Um, in fact, you won't actually get radiographic signs of a stress fracture until it's healing about maybe four to eight weeks after the initial fracture. Um, and that's because what the x-rays can actually pick up is the callus formation, the way that bones heal is they lay down tons of bones. So you get this actually like bulged area of bone, and that's what the x-ray can pick up. So an x-ray early on will not tell you anything, and it will not differentiate medial t- tibial stress syndrome from uh, a stress fracture. But I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that there's there's some importance of treating those two conditions somewhat similarly um where there's uh, you know you have a little bit more play with medial tibial stress syndrome in terms of activity if you know you have a stress fracture the um especially with areas of low risk uh stress fractures the best practice is to have zero pain with activity. Um, otherwise, it's not going to be able to heal. So, if you have a stress fracture, it's it's zero pain with activity. Um, whereas this medial tibial stress syndrome, you have a little bit more leeway. One of the things that y'all didn't touch on, I think, yet is usually those stress fractures are pretty localized. Like it's one spot, it's really irritated. Whereas the Uh, medial tibial stress syndrome a little bit more diffuse and kind of all over the place and it's a little bit more broad um and that's where that tuning fork sometimes comes in because it's tuning fork is just another mode of palpation with a little bit of vibration in it and if it's that same one spot over and over that might give a little bit more of a a bell going off about what you're worried about with the stress fracture whereas a little bit more broad again is going to be more medial tibial stress syndrome matt you had something
2: yeah i uh Nathan and I have talked about this before, but I wish I had known some of this earlier on in my career. What I'd like to apologize to a couple of patients that had stress fractures and I kind of pushed them a little harder um, than maybe we should have. And some of them did well. Some of them had slight flare ups, but you really got to make sure. And this is, by the way, based on clinical practice guidelines right now for stress fracture return to sport is that you really got to wait till your symptoms are
0: gone, gone. Completely gone. Yeah. And that, that was an article that came out a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. So that, that's pretty, it's pretty recent Matt. So we, you, we do Lessons the best we can with that. what we do the best we can with yeah. the information we have. That's why we call People it. People used to yeah.
2: call it my clinical favorite, practice. My,
0: exactly. Yeah. My, my favorite story from PT school. I remember when we were sitting in class and we talked about the change in clinical practice for different medical conditions. And one of them was talking about uh, blood pressure and uh, theory drives practice. And the theory at that time, no matter how good a theory is, it may be wrong. That's kind of what's the point they were making. But the theory at that time was that if somebody had buildup of plaque in their arteries, you needed a higher blood pressure to be able to push blood beyond that plaque block. So the recommendations for blood pressure was to get blood pressure systolic over 220 so that if people had buildup of plaque within their arteries, you could push the blood past it. Whereas obviously now we know that high blood pressure perpetuates is part of the perpetuating problem and lower, lowering blood pressure is the recommendation. So things are going to change in medicine. And that's what kind of makes the profession fun is we have to keep learning and keep adapting and being willing to like humble ourselves and and adapt to practice. What do you got, Matt?
2: My fun one. I just had an uh, experience with this the other day. Um, this is off topic and hopefully we'll talk about IT band syndrome, but I met someone who had had their TFL surgically removed. And for those mm. that don't know. The tensor fascia lot is often a culprit. With tension pulling on the IT band. That structure on the outside of your leg. That most people have lateral knee pain with. Um, they said it didn't change anything. Except they get, oh, oh. G- had more symptoms actually afterward. Because you took out one of the strong hip abductors. That actually stabilizes the TFL. So wow. sometimes cutting things out. Isn't always the best. Unless it's cancer then you should definitely cut it out.
0: Yeah, <laughs> totally. David, do you have anything else to add in this conversation? <laughs> I
1: mean, I guess it comes back down to differential diagnosis, but sometimes like even just a muscle strain, whether we're talking like a soleus strain or we're talking a tibialis posterior strain and or tendonitis, Um
2: Or Or tendinopathy,
1: yeah, if it's been happening for a long time. I mean, it all comes down to clinical patterns, Mm -hmm. how they respond and all that. But they can all have a lot of overlap. And so that's a big reason Mm -hmm. why we're having this conversation and kind of teasing some things out. Because how deep some of these attachments are, that soleus might feel pretty darn deep if that's what's aggravating you. And if someone goes poking you around on the gastroc and they're kind of superficial and they're squeezing it and it's not really hurting and getting to it, that could be a reason why. I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty deep. I mean, it's like literally like behind the dang thing, like behind the tibia. So, um, right, yeah. Just having someone that does a thorough look at everything and how right. it responds to load and going forward, but it all comes down to differential diagnosis in the clinician. Yeah. yeah. Don't
2: don't do this stuff in isolation. I think any of these things, whether it's the subjective, whether it's the obje- objective, it's everything combined and making that final picture. And how a patient responds to treatment is also what's called a diagnostic intervention. All of these things together is really what paints the picture. It's not just one thing. And that's where I think where we go where previously we've gone the wrong way with just labeling something shin splints.
0: Yep, completely. Let's transition to talking a little bit about causes of medial tibial stress syndrome. And again, that's when we're talking about periosteal irritation and inflammation. Oh, that's what I wanted to say right before we go on to this. One of the things we said earlier is that with with true medial tibial stress syndrome, what they're finding is inflammation to the periosteum and then decreased bone density to the area underneath that. So, that decreased bone density in that area could perpetuate an eventual stress reaction or stress fracture. So when you go about treating these things, um, whether if it's a stress fracture or medial tibial stress syndrome, some of the same considerations come into play in terms of allowing appropriate loading of the bone. I just wanted to make that point that there's they're not always directly correlated. It's not that medial tibial stress syndrome always leads to a stress fracture, but there are things about the anatomy and the changes within that anatomy that happen that could put you at a little bit higher risk for a stress fracture. So it's just something to be cautious of as you go about it. It's a little bit of a patient process when it comes to your training and, and managing your loads and it can be frustrating. So let's transition again to talking about what are causes of medial tibial stress syndrome? So I'm just going to talk about one study that was done. This is I, if if my lit search was correct, this is the first uh, prospective study that was done um, to look at what is causing medial tibial stress syndrome. And so they looked at a bunch of different things to integrate all the different types of ca- potential causes that uh, could be looked at from a clinical model. Um, and so they looked at passive range of motion, they looked at muscle strength, they looked at plantar pressures, or like the pressure on the bottom of the foot throughout um, a running cycle and running kinematics. And they looked at the differences in those, those measurements between runners who developed medial tibial stress syndrome and those who didn't. So what that study found was that weaker hip abductors, more pressure on the medial or inside of the foot at the three main parts of the gait cycle, You know, rear, rear foot, midfoot, and forefoot. If they, they, the people who had medial tibial stress syndrome also had greater contralateral pelvic drop and they had a greater increased peak amount of duration of rear foot eversion. So not the, um, not just the amount. So there wasn't a, a bigger amount, but there was also a higher duration of time in rear foot eversion during stance phase. And those were all identified as risk factors. So when you guys hear that list, why do some of those make sense? David, do you want to go first? Actually, when I, when I read this study, I thought about you specifically when it was talking about um, duration of eversion, of duration of rear foot eversion. I thought about you instantly because it's something you've talked about a lot.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I'm just a guy yeah. talking. I don't even know what I'm talking about half the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we're talking about medial tibial stress syndrome, we're talking uh, whether it's a stress fracture, a stress reaction, irritation of the periosteum a lot of times it's on that medial side, right? I mean, it can it be on the lateral side? Can it be on the anterior? Sure, but I think a good chunk of people that come through, it's usually on the medial side. And the reason why, there's a lot of stress going to the medial structures. And so whether that's coming from higher up the chain or down below, sometimes it's chicken or the egg. And if you don't have good stability, this isn't just hip, knee, foot, and ankle. This could be core and back as well. This could be excessive thoracic rotation, throwing yourself into a greater internal rotation moment causing you to create a torsional effect on your leg, things dive in and create a torsional torque. Like it literally pulls on the bone at that point while that foot eventually collapses, rolls you forward. And when I say that foot collapses, we've already talked about this at length many times. Pronation itself isn't a bad thing, but if you have excessive amounts of it and you're on the ground and you're on that medial side and you're there for a long time, that's going to change the way forces line up. And so it's really just kind of a matter of just making a better athlete. I mean, a lot of people think of runners as runners and they're like, oh, they're not like full athletes. It's like that's not true at all. I mean, you're coming down with multiple times your body weight and you're having to explode off of your foot probably thousands of times, you know, depending on what distance you're running. I mean, um, even if you have like a slower cadence at 100, let's say 160 steps per minute, that's a lot of steps. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. you multiply that over an hour of running, that's, that's a good amount of load going to that area. So when you multiply it over that long and that repetitive with no breaks, it's getting loaded quite a bit. And so it really comes down to the interaction of forces and load sharing and things like that. And so like client talked about this a little bit, um, fibula being non-weight bearing versus weight bearing. And obviously some people will talk about that a little bit differently, but when you're landing on the ground that hard and things are coming up the chain and it's hitting that ankle, it's going to take about 20% of the load probably like most of the time. Um, that's mm-hmm. not to say you can't have a stress fracture there cause it's 20%. I've met several people that have gotten them there. Um, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's an interesting conversation, but a lot of things can create internal rotation torque, whether it's lack of stability in the gluteus maximus. You can't control that external rotation torque, so that hip internally rotates excessively, puts a little bit of pressure, and this could be knee, foot, ankle, whatever, foot, like intrinsic to the foot as well. Can you actually support your medial longitudinal arch while it's coming down and you lever off of it? There's, there's so many facets to this, um, including the spine. Uh, that was a pun by the way, facet mm-hmm. joints, spine. Yeah, <laughs> oh, wow. we're on next level with these puns. It, yeah. um,
0: it was such a good pun, I didn't even exactly. hear it.
1: So there's all kinds of things that can create irritation. And it can also be coming from the nerves, too. And Matt talked about this earlier. I mean, if you have irritation to the deep fibular nerve or something where there's a you know, a little bit of stiffness, things aren't moving and things start getting pushed on, that can create other symptoms down there, too. So. Where where this wrench is going, a lot of things come immediately. Gravity pulls us down and in, and so it's our job to control that. Essentially, if you take anything yep. from what I just said,
0: and <laughs> and what you in that point right there, you know, weak hip abductors and the the pressure distributions that they're seeing and the amount of duration spent in rear foot eversion, that's all inability to control that force that you're talking about. And the quote from you from a previous episode that I actually like use with people clinically now is eversion is not the problem or pronation is not the problem. Uncontrolled pronation is the problem. And, and so that, that was, I feel like that's a really great umbrella term for what's going on here. And you're seeing, you know, a lot of these, um, issues and these risk factors going on, um, that they're measuring kind of pointing to some of that inability to control, um, Some of those forces, you know, when you think about, I think the hardest one for some people to identify or conceptualize is the ones with the hip, which you talked about, whereas if you have weak hip abductors, that can change the angle of your femur, which changes the or angle and rotation of your femur. And there's just a a chain reaction where if your femur rotates, your tibia rotates, your foot rotates, it's, it's this chain that all is connected. And that's where some of that can come in.
1: Not to say that it can't go the other way, too. 100%.
0: Hundred yeah. percent. Top down, bottom up. It can be either. Matt, do you have any other reflections on kind of that list of um, of things that they found as causes, or anything you were surprised that wasn't there?
2: Um, uh, I was trying to think. I mean the the pressure on the medial aspect foot. That totally makes sense. Weak hip abductors, a contralateral hip hip drop, just because it's changing your center of gravity. And you're going to get a shift forward. So, you're again, that goes back to what Nathan was talking about where you know, the bone is really meant to deal with compressive things. When you start adding torsional or bending kind of loads, yeah, that makes sense. You're going to get irritations, whether it be bone, whether it be pulling on the periosteum, Either either one, right? That stuff doesn't like getting sheared, and that's kind of mm-hmm. the big thing. The duration of rear foot eversion has actually been really common in literature right now. So for Achilles tendinopathy, that's the relationship between pronation and Achilles tendinopathy is not, again, how much you pronate, but it's if you're able to get into and out of it. So, again, duration is being really connected with a lot of different issues. So, again, how much people pronate, not really not as big of an issue as can they get out of it? Do you have control of that motion, I think what I was interested in not seeing was some biomechanical factors that we've talked about before in terms of how well can they shock absorb. So when you're doing a gait analysis, do you get normal angles of of joint motion? Right? Do you get you know 20 plus degrees of hip flexion? Do you get 40, to, 30 to 40 degrees of knee flexion? If you're seeing somebody that lands really stiff, right? Who doesn't get that stuff? That's something that I would I would you know pay attention to. And maybe that's something I pay attention to more clinically. So I was surprised. To see a lack of shock absorption, not be on there. We're seeing more kind of like excessive motion being one side. So I think there's another piece. And yeah, what I'm talking about tends to be more associated with bone and stress, stress reaction type things. But even the periosteum, right? That can get a little Mm -hmm. bit loaded. But that's a different conversation.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's a very important thing that wasn't involved in this study. Is they looked at running kinematics and not running kinetics. Kinetics. So. Yeah, so just for teasing those things out, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but running kinematics looks at force Forces. data, like yes. acceleration and velocity, right. whereas kinetics yep. is going to look at joint angles. Right, just and so it's motion. a it's a very different assessment, which was not included. So I think right. of things like like you talked about shock absorbing capacity through their hip, knee, and their ankle. They didn't measure those from a, kin- a kinetic perspective of the biomechanics. They also didn't look at how much vertical oscillation does the per- person right. have. Um, they also didn't look at footwear and how does that influence somebody's um, you know forces through that area. And and so I think that there are things that this one study didn't get to look at, um, but they did a good job. there are things that make sense. But they did a good job. Yeah, it's yeah. One of the first. that's why I wanted to bring this. I wanted yeah. to bring it in. So. Uh, I think that kind of leads us into the final part of this conversation. It's kind of the question of what should we do if we start having signs of medial tibial stress syndrome? And you're going to probably hear the the word it depends too many times as we talk about each facet of um, trying to figure this whole thing out. But I, I think the question's both surround what sort of treatment do I do and also what kind of steps do I take from a diagnostic standpoint? Who should I go see? Should I go see someone? Those kinds of questions. And the reason, one thing that I found interesting, there aren't a lot of studies that are good about how to treat this stuff. And that's because diagnosis is hard. So if you can't diagnose something well, you can't group people into studies to try to figure out what actually helps them. So just know that there aren't a lot of studies on this stuff. Uh, but there are things that we've seen clinically and make sense through uh, the, all of these loading principles that we've talked about. So we do want to touch on them. So let's. I'm going to try to kind of section these off so that we can talk about them individually. But first, how would you go about recommending... Um, Modifications to your training routine? What kind of principles would we give people who start to have shin pain um, and aren't sure what it is? What's What would be some good steps for modifying your training routine to kick it off? David, do you have any thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, just
1: go put on a pair of alpha flies and keep running. <laughs> I'm joking oh, no. for the listeners and for the viewers. See, you shouldn't say that because people at legitimately do that. Yeah, that's someone's where gonna go do it and they're gonna go blame me and it's all gonna go bad.
2: I call it um, shoe hopping where you just you're injured and you're just trying to find that one shoe that's gonna fix it. And trust me, I've done that. It doesn't work. Like you gotta yeah. address this stuff. That's just a band-aid.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. first things first, slow down, stop, take a look at where you are, not just in running, but in life in stress and just see, take a look at the modifiable mm-hmm. factors you can even incorporate before we start talking exercises, before we start talking, going and see someone, if you're not sleeping well, you're not eating well, let's start there. Go get some sleep, go eat well, do that for a couple of days. If, if, if the running has been bugging you consistently, we're talking every day for like the last week to two weeks, just take the day off, take a day or two off, recover, see how it feels on the other side of it. Now, if it's still bugging you, and you've done everything and it's not any better and the symptoms are exactly the same well then yes go see someone uh, i i do believe in giving it a couple chances like starting lower lower decrease the volume kind of keep it a little bit of an active recovery i mean you can do light little exercises non-noxious stimuli you know things that don't hurt um and play around with it a little bit and see if that helps. Yeah. Biking, biking, even just long walks, you know, that's still an axial load that can still be a good recovery mechanism. Um, Mm -hmm. but ultimately I think sleep is arguably the most underrated thing on the planet. And it's something that I find myself working really hard to try and keep because when you're increasing Mm -hmm. mileage, you're running faster, you're doing more, you need to be able to recover. I mean, it's great that you're putting an adaptive load on your body and things are responding, but you got to give them a chance to respond. And if you don't give them the chance to respond and adapt, well, then it's kind of for naught. It just kind of goes down the other way. So I would take a look at those modifiable factors first uh, in your own life. How can I decrease my stress? How can I sleep more? How can I eat more? Um, and it might not even be. Yeah, take just, a day t- off. just take a day off. See what happens. It's not the end of the world. You're not going to lose all your fitness in one day. And, um, and just see how you feel. Just start there.
0: Mm-hmm and i like you saying slow down too you know for the as we increase our speed the forces that we have to handle is so much higher so just see how you do slower yeah matt anything to add to it to that yeah i
2: i I agree with all that stuff that i think there's a lot of modifiable factors first about reflecting going where is your training did you bump up too much too fast and maybe bumping back down and giving your body a chance to adapt might be a great thing and you might be like hey this might resolve fairly quickly You know, same thing. I got to like emphasize what David said about sleep, nutrition, all these things that play into tissue healing and tissue recovery, right? Like you don't get better during the run. You get better when you recover from it. If you're not recovering, that tissue, that tissue damage is going to build up. So I think taking the second to go, Hey, can I, can I modify this? Because our, our goal as PTs is we want you independent, right? It's not that we don't want to see you, but we want you to be able to be independent and hopefully get some of this on your own. That being said, Right. If you try all these things and this thing, this stuff is sticking around, then you might want to consider seeing somebody.
0: What does somebody mean? I mean, I would
1: honestly I'm biased, but I think starting with the PT is the ideal situation here. Have someone take a look at your movement patterns, see, do some differential diagnosis, go see everything, try a couple things out. It's low risk. And I think most of the time people are going to come out better than they came in. Um, obviously, if you try that and things don't get any better or even worse um it might be worth talking to a doc, you know and seeing where that goes, but go for it,
2: yeah, the, I'd see the best thing is you know obviously a little biased, but I would definitely check out a running or sports p t who is hopefully specialized in this area to be able to go, hey. I'm not looking to try to get you on a long-term, you know, plan. I'm looking to go, Hey, what the what is going on? And then you need to have a conversation going, is this something that's going to respond to rehab immediately? Or do we need to potentially elevate this level of care and go consider a, a sports medicine, uh, MD or DO.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. And I, and I, I I agree just to get, especially on those first steps of backing down your routine. One thing I want to add in there is, um, as you start backing yourself down, also start to keep closer track to your symptom patterns. Um, We don't want you to perseverate too much, but if you end up needing to go in to see someone, it would be helpful to know the answers to questions like how long into a run does it start and how long after the run does it go away? And do you feel the pain at night? I think starting to pay attention to those things would be, would be really a a helpful thing to do if you end up having to go in at some point. And I, I, I do think, I agree with y'all. I mean, we're super biased for wanting to see PTs first, but if you can find a PT who's trained in running and that's kind of their thing, that's going to be a great step for you. And, you know, every state has slightly different rules as it comes to like, hey, can I just go see a PT out of the blue? But most states have direct access PT um, without the need for a referral from a physician. That said, there are certain insurance. And I know in Wisconsin, we have it kind of made. We're kind of, we're on the we're not on the bleeding edge of kind of PT practice when it comes to legislature, but we're close. So even like Medicare people, we we just need a signed plan of care by a physician. We don't even need a referral. So like, there's a lot of freedom there, but depending on your specific plan, you'll have to learn if you have a referral, if you have a good uh, relationship with your physician, I a lot of times have patients just call say, Hey, I'm having this pain with running. Would you be willing to send a referral over to my PT? And I, I haven't had anybody who hasn't allowed that to happen. I also live in a small town. Um, so we have a different kind of a culture here, but, um, I, I don't think going into a, an urgent care situation is going to really yield you anything beneficial. They'll probably tell you, you have shin splints and that yep. you should ice and rest. That's yes. probably what you're going to hear. Um, unless it's a, exceptional, in which case, like mm-hmm. very awesome to whoever that is, who's the exception to the rule. Um, but you know, I, if, if you're just, if you're someone who does need a referral, try calling and just see if they'd be willing to send one over to you. But if they're like, I'm going to have to see you, I would just go see your primary care yep. physician. Um, and if you really, yeah, just get the referral. If you really want to see a PT first, if you want to see an orthopedist go for it, you can do that, but also make sure that they're running specific too. Yes, um, if, if you can go see them first, but, um, yeah, there's always a little bit of gray when it comes to how to get access which is a whole other topic
2: but but yeah i'm going to really encourage make sure that who you're seeing is a runner or understands runner because if you see anybody else they're probably just going to say hey take two weeks rest ice it and then go right back which might help in a small percentage but oftentimes isn't treating the source of the issue and their symptoms will often bounce right back so yeah make sure you're seeing whoever it is whoever it is make sure they actually have experience with runners or are a runner themselves
1: Right. You don't want to see somebody cool. be like, "Hey, I'm running 70 miles a week," and have them respond, "Why?"
2: Classic. That's <laughs> a very Why are you classic response. So much?
1: You don't want that.
2: Yes, that's a red yeah. flag. You should walk out of the yeah. office very quickly. As, as <laughs> Say, be, please
0: don't charge me. Yeah, Ask
2: for a second opinion, don't charge me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's talk about some rehabilitative strategies. Um, what kind of things, when it comes to strengthening, when it comes to proprioceptive training, what sort of things do you think about that in general might be helpful in these situations?
2: I think the biggest thing is obviously if. If you are seeing someone, they need to be treating the actual sources of the problem, right? So, you know, if the like treating excessively treating the foot and ankle when the hip is the problem probably isn't going to do the best job. Even though it's going to be a little carryover and a little bit vice versa, so you got to really treat whatever is driving this, right? So, if it is excessive uncontrolled eversion, you better start working on that. If it is weak hips and you're getting excessive pelvic drop and you're getting that change in center of gravity and that's and that's center of mass then yeah, you need to work on that. But I think all runners would definitely benefit working on hip abductor strength or endurance and strength, I should say. So the classic like lateral band walk or leg abduction, stuff like that, getting that glute med to kick on a little bit. Or I should say, well, it's not just glute med. It's a lot of things working on hip abduction. So let me not just put all the glory on the glute med, which a lot of people do. It's all that stuff on the side that helps control that pelvis um, mm-hmm. single leg balance stuff is really, really good. Right, working on um, post Tib or calf stuff, uh, just general strengthening and helping somebody learn to shock absorb better is probably the key. Whether that is through, you know, some people say you can change it with foot strike, that would not be my go to. I think a lot of you can do a lot better and a lot quicker thing by trying to work on just the single leg squat and their ability to tolerate some load with that. It's really simple. And it sounds really like easy, but Again, working on the ability to balance and tolerate load in single limb stance is kind of that overarching thing of, you know, no matter where you start,
1: you better get back to that.
0: Yeah, David, anything to add?
1: Yeah, I think to take that a step further, just when we talk about proprioception, joints, awareness, and space, I like to tell people that, like, we're getting things talking to each other. Make them work with each other and not in isolation. And so um, – with that with that said, sometimes I will do some intrinsic, just motor control. Just people have a hard time firing that great toe, whether it's depression, elevation, little toes. Like They have very poor body awareness and how to activate those types of muscles. Yeah.
0: You said intrinsic, like intrinsic foot strength, like the little muscles in the feet. and Yeah, those just going. literally
1: firing up muscles to help support that medial longitudinal arch. Um, that's just one piece of a much larger puzzle. Um, I like doing mm-hmm. a lot of single leg activities, whether it's like single leg fire hydrants or even doing like a banded soleus walk, getting them in a knee flex position because that's what they're going to be in when they're running. If you're landing with it mm-hmm. fully straight locked out knee, I mean, I'm a little concerned, um, but mm-hmm. getting them in positions where it's going to ha- be a building block towards running essentially. So having a slight knee flex position, having plantar flexion that moves into dorsiflexion and controlling it, you know, um, just things like that, you know, weight bearing single leg, I mean, Matt hit the nail on the head. I'm just kind of adding a little bit more onto that. So,
0: and I, I would say too, it's never a bad idea to do some heavy strengthening too. our bone, our bones do well with heavy loads, like heavy, heavy loads.
1: Like whether we're doing bilateral or unilateral, like heavy farmer carries, things like that, getting the body used to load in general. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then also just working core and back muscles too. You do need those, you know, (laughs) like you see people fatigued there all the time. Everyone knows exactly what it looks like. And I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but if you have no trunk control down there, whether it be the deep back extensors, deep core, like flexors, whether it's, we're talking transverse abdominus, rectus abdominis, whatever, um, your glute meat, your glute max, things start moving around a lot more, you know, cause you're just trying to do every yeah. little thing you can to create torque and keep you moving forward. So just building endurance and just building a better athlete, essentially.
0: I think I want to add in one quick thing, too. I had mentioned heavy lifting, but if you haven't been a lifter before and you haven't lifted heavy, I'm not recommending you go lift heavy. You have to train to lift heavy, too, so don't just go squat 300 pounds tomorrow because you, you heard it's good for your bones. Um, like you You might have to learn how to do a squat without any weight first, so I just have to bring right. that caveat in. Matt, what do you got?
2: I'm going to add an emphasis on the heavy stuff, but again, you got to work into it. And it doesn't matter who you are. So obviously, one of my specialties is geriatrics and older individuals who I will work them in to lifting heavy for a variety of reasons. One, because it improves power output, it improves bone density. There's so many things that help when you start working into lifting heavy, and it doesn't take that much time you don't need to spend like six hours in the gym it can be like 15 20 minutes a couple days a week even that with just something a little bit heavier can make such a huge impact because people don't realize that running is there's a lot of impact when you run i think nathan you you gave an even higher number than i i usually do some of the older literature talked about running being like three to four times your body weight did i see on yours it's like four to eight times Yeah. yeah so running can be four to eight times your body weight walking is just one time so you know, I weigh 150 pounds, so every time I'm walking, that's 150 pounds through my leg. If running, right, especially if running faster, what's eight eight times 150? That's 300. Is it 7? 1,200, right? Almost 1,200 <laughs> pounds of force just with a yeah. single step, right? So yeah. you don't necessarily have to lift 1,200 pounds. Maybe even doing like a single leg, like 30, 40, 50 pound single leg squat would be good. But you just got to get your body used to that heavier load because that's at the end of the day, that's where this stuff is having a problem. Whether your body can't handle load, is excessively moving or not moving enough, whether the muscles can tolerate that load or can't, it all comes down to a body is mismanagement of the body's ability to handle load.
0: And I'll just kind of cap this part of the conversation when it comes to people who have medial tibial stress syndrome and they're getting rehabilitation, we can't tell you what to do because it's going to depend on how, what your examination says. So that one is yep. a complete, it depends. When it comes to, if I want to prevent it, what should I do? It's basically do everything. <laughs> it's basically like, you know, David kind of talked about yeah. core to hip to to calf to everything. And it sounds overwhelming, but the key is we just have to we, you have to if you want to run at high levels, you have to train to be able to handle those high levels. So um, and even if you want to run a little bit and you've never ran before, that's a huge change in the demand and you just have to prepare for it. So get as Chris Powers, his thing is you have to um, be fit to run. You don't run to get fit. So you just have to be prepared to be able to handle the loads that are coming. Let's talk about one last topic, um, and it's shoes, of course. We have to talk about shoes. Um, What what do you think about shoes, medial tibial stress syndrome, orthotics? How do those interact with each other? Matt, we'll let you talk first.
2: Uh, You should just wear the fresh for more. That's all I have to say about that. That's it.
0: (laughs) But then I get perineal pain. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, then yes. So... You know when it comes to shoes that's often the first go-to and i can't judge because that's honestly part of the reason this whole website started was me like jumping from shoe to shoe occasionally if i was injured trying to figure out how to fix it too quickly then i became a pt and that was easier um but when it comes to shoes making sure your shoes are up to date so that's one of the easiest ways to take a look going are you running have you been running in a pair of shoes for like six years right that's not okay the foams do break down i had somebody come to me going oh i've had the same running shoe for like two years and it's like i'm still running 70 miles a week it's like So, foams break down. They don't last forever, and they're not lasting as long as they used to be, especially some of the EVA stuff. So, making sure your shoes are up to date. And I suggest people change their shoes at least every four to six months, depending on how much you're running. If you're running 100 miles a week, you're going to have to think about probably every month or two, and that's just the way it goes, right? Because unless you're, like, super light on your feet. So, making sure your shoes are up to date is really, really important. Things don't last as long as they used to, so... We gen- the industry suggests three to 500 miles. That's something you need to figure out how long shoes last for you. So that's the it, probably the, yeah, go for it, Nathan. Thoughts about orthotics? Thoughts about orthotics. If the orthotic is actually going to correct an issue that has been found to be influencing this, so if you have excessive eversion and you're not willing to purchase a shoe to correct that, or you can't find one, then maybe, but do not use the orthotic as a band aid. Okay. If you have some issues with controlling tibial motion and controlling, you know, pronation and things like that, then you got to work on strengthening that. And honestly, if I were you, if you have the funds available, I would just get, I mean, I'm a little biased, but I would get a shoe that already has arch support or stability in it. Right. Cause I, I worry sometimes that an orthotic can, um, be a band-aid, but it does work. If it's really able to control for you what you need help with, that's fine. But just make sure you're working on whatever that thing is. Just know yeah, if it's if it's not foot and ankle related, it might make it worse.
0: It's, I was going to bring that up. Uh, So that's a great, great thing. We talked about there's influences. The risk factors that you heard in terms of strength measures were not found at the foot. The strength measures that were found to have influence on the people who found it were actually up at the hip in this scenario. So just keep that in mind. It might not just be the foot. And if there's somebody listening who knows I'm wrong because they have a study in their back pocket, please share it with me because I want to read it. But I haven't seen anything that says – that orthotics help people with medial tibial stress syndrome, like as a global recommendation. So if you have shin splints and you go to a running store or you see a, some medical provider and they say, you should get an orthotic, maybe maybe not, maybe not, uh, just because I don't think that there's anything that is showing that recommendation as being a solid correlate. Yes, that will help your shin, your shin pain. Um, so, just keep that in mind. I think the other thing that we know about shoes, Matt, you want to go for, before I keep going?
2: Were you going to say the rocker? No, go ahead. Oh,
0: well, I was going to say one thing that can
2: take redistribute some load. So, maybe, remember, this is not getting rid of it, but this is redistributing it, is considering something like a rocker shoe. And the reason I say that is because rocker shoes, based on literature, tend to shift forces away from ankle tibia and uh like foot and they tend to redistribute them up at the knee and the hip so you're not getting rid of forces but you can kind of change them around so that might be helpful really depends on the person though so i I caution that especially when it comes to mtss
0: i I think the other the other thing when it comes to footwear is we do know there's a big difference between minimalist shoes and you know very cushioned shoes or just traditionally cushioned shoes, like the minimalist movement, um, that came out, we got a lot of good injury data from that movement, um, which gave us a lot of information about stress-related injuries, bone stress-related injuries. And I think that that's one of those scenarios where if you jump into running, um, and you don't actually have a good pair of running shoes and you're just running in whatever day shoes you've been using at work or around the house, that might not be the right shoe to, to do it. And shoes can actually, Like for, for a new runner who hasn't purchased a pair of running shoes, I actually do look at shoes early with this condition. Cause I'm like, have you actually bought a pair of running shoes either? Like you said, Matt recently, or if it's, you've never, maybe they've never thought about a running shoe before and they just had whatever shoe they've had for walking around the house. So I think just having a shoe with some level of cushioning, um, versus a minimalist shoe, for someone starting off might be a smart move unless you want to go very slowly and work your way into the demands that a minimal issue requires which again will, has a chance of making you stronger but go ahead
2: but they t- it takes six to nine months to truly transition based on research and clinical experience so you better make sure you're investing a long slow process there david you have anything to add
1: no i think that was Nothing. good cool Great. I think his is just so do what,
2: everything in alpha flies, right? That's the solution. That's honestly yeah. the answer. Just
1: go wear alpha flies. <laughs> I'm joking again. I feel like I have to have a disclaimer for like 80% of the things I say. But no.
0: <laughs> yeah. Because if you watch what he does, he just wears alpha fly for everything. He, does. he doesn't actually, no, I actually he does not wear it very
1: doesn't. often. Now that I think about it, like, yeah. Is that cause yeah. we just made you self-conscious? Cause every time
2: you're like, what am I going to race? And we all say, alpha I mean, fly, between
1: my two pairs, I maybe have 140 miles which is nothing that's, that's compared surprising. to like, or is it because you're yeah. saving it? I, I'm not though. Like, I think we just have so many shoes that we're reviewing constantly that like, unless yeah. I have good reason it's to part put of the it weird. on, like,
0: yep. It's that's part fair. of the weird world we live in. Yep. Uh, I, I think what should Speaking stick which, out to there's you right there's now one in the
1: frame there, there is. there's an <laughs> alpha fly in the background. <laughs> of course. <laughs>
0: right over my shoulder right that, there. That's great. There it is. Um, you know, what you didn't hear from us is specific shoes that we recommend because because there isn't really a shoe for for shin pain medial tibial stress syndrome. There just isn't one. So sorry, that might be disappointing, but we're not going to be able to come out with that recommendation because each um, person's
2: going to be so different. Right. What you need to actually address that's going to be it's, it's very unique. And even what shoe is going to work for you overall is going to be unique. So those articles you see like
0: top best shoes for that, those are all they're tough garbage. (laughs) Yeah. So I think a couple big takeaways here, uh, that we just want to wrap up with is shin splints is a term that is not helpful. Again, if you Google shin splints, you're going to just get a smattering of information that probably is not not going to be specific to the actual condition that you have unless you get lucky. And that's basically what would have to happen. Um, and so if you start to have shin pain, first step would be to think about how you can dial yourself back, worry about your sleep, worry about your, your stress levels, worry about your speed, worry about your volume. Dial all of that back and start paying attention to the patterns of your pain so that if you have to seek more care, you have the chance to share the information that you've learned about your running pain patterns, which is super helpful for the person that you're going to see. Um, If you have any other questions for us um, about medial tibial stress syndrome, please reach out to us. We'll do our best to get back to you. Um, at the same time, we do want to hear your subjective question of the week, which is what other pain conditions or running related injuries do you want to learn more about? We would love to hear it. In the meantime, you can follow us, uh, at doctors of running on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, and our YouTube channel. If you're watching there, you can subscribe to this. It'll continually update you on stuff. If you'd be so kind to leave a review of what we're doing, if you're listening on podcasts, that will help the exposure of this podcast. And, uh, Uh, We are excited to continue conversations about this stuff in the future. Take care, everybody.